We are continuing our series on what lies ahead. This will be part two. And as a reminder, uh, the What Lies Ahead book, which is a comprehensive eschatology uh, book, uh, you know, 350 pages or so uh, with uh, charts and graphs and all kinds of uh, helpful information. We're not necessarily in this video series going through each chapter, chapter by chapter, but we are going to cover all of the material. I'm just sort of coming at it a little bit different. And for those who may be watching this uh, uh, online, we've had several take advantage of this already this week. Uh, you can pick up the books, and if you're not here at the church, you can pick up the book online, but be sure and use the discount code WLA, because it'll get you, save you, I think five bucks is what it works out to, maybe six. But anyway, it's 25% off. And just go to the notbyworks.org store. You can go to our website and click on store. You'll see it. Uh, and those of you that are here, of course, the books are available out in uh, the lobby. Okay, so we left off last time with the big picture, and we're going to segue from that into beginning to trace God's plan in this big picture of his plan of the ages from Genesis all the way through uh, to Revelation and touching on a number of those biblical prophecies that remain to be fulfilled along the way. So we've been looking at this chart quite a bit, uh, both in the Spirit of the Antichrist series and in this new series that we began last week. Uh, this is God's plan of the ages, so roughly 6,000 years of human history, and uh, we do take the Bible literally when it comes to the book of Gen uh, Genesis, that it was uh, uh, literal 24-hour days, and uh, we do believe in a young earth, and we don't have time to make that case uh, in this particular series, but perhaps in the future we can get into some biblical doctrine of creationism. Uh, but as you look through time, it, it's pretty self-evident that at different times in human history, God interacted with mankind a little bit differently. For example, he walked and talked with, garden, with Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, then with Noah, for example, he instituted human government. Uh, under Abraham, which is where we're going to spend our next couple of sessions, uh, he instituted a, an unconditional promise or covenant, literally, a guaranteed unconditional covenant that is global in scope and that all of us will one day uh, reap the benefits of, as will everyone on earth. Uh, then, of course, when the nation of Israel was born after Abraham, uh, we have the age of the law, where God gave the written code to help regulate life in his chosen nation, Israel. <clears throat> and then, uh, after the birth of Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, we came uh, to the birthday of the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Uh, clearly, this was a mystery, something previously unknown in the Old Testament that is previously unrevealed. God, over time, revealed more and more truth about himself and his plan of the ages to mankind through the written word. And today, we find ourselves living in what the New Testament refers to as the church age. You don't find the word church in the Old Testament anywhere because it didn't exist. It was born Jew and Gentile in one body after the death and resurrection of Christ. And this uh, present age called the church age in the New Testament is also called the last days, the final age prior to the culmination of all things. When God inaugurates this long-awaited kingdom that we're going to be talking about, fulfills all of that prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled, and the Bible in such a way then uh, concludes the way it began in sinless perfection as God recreates all things and makes all things new. So that's God's plan. Another way that we said you could look at it is uh, this way, starting out with the creation on the left side. God created the universe, uh, 
then he created the nations, then he created his chosen nation Israel, and ultimately the church. But of course, because of the fall of mankind and the curse of sin, all of these institutions are broken, corrupt, and uh, in need of redemption. And so on the redemption side, uh, God, through the death and resurrection of his Son and our Savior, provided redemption. It will be ultimately realized first in the rapture of the church, followed by the restoration of Israel into the land and the coming kingdom, followed by the judgment of all the nations that rejected the free gift of eternal life, the gospel, and ultimately with the redemption or recreation, if you will, of all of creation. And along the way, God is doing many, many things. I think we make a mistake, as some theologians uh, suggest, when we look at all of God's plan through the lens of individual salvation. That's certainly part of it. But God is doing a lot more than just that. God has a plan, as we said last week, for angels and for demons and for Israel and the church and so forth, right? And so God, in His sovereignty, if He so chose, could have sent all of mankind to hell because we rebelled against Him and He had warned us about that to begin with. So as a just, holy, righteous God, He could have said, okay, here's what you did, here's what you get. But in part of his plan was in his incredible love and mercy and grace, which we're going to talk about in the worship hour a little bit later, he redeemed mankind. He, provide, he provided a, a means for salvation. Um, but he also, along the way, has a plan for all of creation. You know, when sin entered the world, it didn't just affect you and me. It affected all of creation. The whole world is under the curse of sin. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 8 that all of creation the created realm groans, waiting to be remo- released from this curse of sin. You know, the, the rose bushes don't want to have thorns on them. You know, there's the weeds in the gardens. There's the cosmic disturbances and struggles. There's the hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis and all of the other. There's the, the uh, droughts and the fires and the floods and all of the things that are just part of a cursed world where Satan is prince. And so this plan of the ages involves redemption, and we need to think beyond just individual mankind. I really believe one of the reasons that Satan has blinded men's uh, hearts, not only to the gospel, but also to eschatology, the study of the end times, we've talked about that, why don't more people study it, is because we've become tunnel vision to think it's all about me. It's all about individuals. How can I have eternal salvation? How can I make sure I go to heaven? And that's part of the plan. And as far as you and I and our own personal decision, it's the most important decision. But we've got to step back and see that God has a plan that is much broader than that. It's a plan for all of the created realm. Remember, there were six days of creation. So God created mankind in His image on the sixth day, but all of the rest of creation also was impacted by the fall and needs to be uh, redeemed. And so God's plan all along involved uh, ushering in the kingdom. And so we want to look this morning at God's kingdom promise. God's kingdom promise. And then next week, assuming we're able to get through everything that I have planned this morning, we're going to go back and look at the covenant the technical covenant, unconditional covenant behind this promise. It's not just an empty promise, but it's a hard, fast covenant. But that co- this promise, this kingdom promise, you have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 to begin to see it all started in the garden. 
That's where the fall of mankind occurred, and then that's where the redemption plan was set in motion. So we read in Genesis 3.15, this is God talking to the serpent. Now who's the serpent? Satan, right. And how do we know that? Just always like to point this out. How do we know that the serpent is Satan? Does, does Genesis tell us that? As a matter of fact, you will search the entire book of Genesis and never find a single reference to Satan or the devil. It's never mentioned. So how do we know the serpent is the devil? You have to go all the way, uh, faith. Cross-referencing with, uh, Cross with Revelation. So isn't that interesting? We're actually beginning a study here. We're in our second session of this on what lies ahead. And you start out in Genesis at the very beginning of creation, Genesis 1 and 2, and then the fall, and, and now we're in chapter 3 with the fall. And, and you automatically see a link from 1,500 years later in a different part of the world, in a different language even, when the Spirit of God inspired John on the island of Patmos to write the book of Revelation. And in chapter 12, we're told that that serpent of old is called the devil. So we know the serpent is the devil because of the whole counsel of God. It's one of the reasons that I love systematic theology. You know, uh, some people love to just zero in on a particular verse or passage and just spend weeks studying it and parsing every verb and looking at the Greek syntax and studying other, you know, Greek and first century Greek literature and so forth. I'm more of a big picture guy. I'm the kind of guy that likes to look at the box lid to the jigsaw puzzle and see how things fit together rather than spending hours studying one little piece, right? And so when you look at the big picture, which is what theology is all about, it's comparing Scripture with Scripture. Theologians call that the analogy of faith. That's a kind of a technical term to refer to the synthesis of Scripture across biblical authors, across testaments, across all of it. When we do that, we find out that this dialogue between God and, and the serpent is really a dialogue between God and Satan. And this is the beginning of this cosmic struggle between good and evil, between God and Satan, that we talked so much about in the Spirit of the Antichrist series. So Satan was kicked out of heaven by rebelling against God, comes to earth, immediately seeks to take over the earth by uh, confronting Adam and Eve. When they sinned, uh, he then became the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, the god of this age. And by the time you get to the epistles of John in the late first century, about the same time that he wrote Revelation, he tells us in 1 John 5 that the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. So that's the context. God is speaking to Satan, uh, the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, serpent. Remember, God's talking to the serpent here. And you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. Now this uh, passage has puzzled uh, secular scholars who study the Semitic languages of the ancient Near East for, for centuries. Why? Because of the word seed. Now that word seed that you see in red there is the Hebrew word zerah. Zerah. And it literally means seed from a male or specifically semen. It's used 229 times in the Hebrew text. And it always refers to the seed of a male. 
So it is strange indeed for Moses, who wrote Genesis under the inspiration of the Spirit, to refer to her seed. That would have leaped off the page to a reader of the original Hebrew text. It doesn't make sense. It's a contradiction, if you will. But we must remember that Genesis not only has a human author, but like every book of the Bible, Genesis has a divine author. Often in theological books these days, it's uh, within, within my lifetime, and it's become common to refer to biblical authors, at least among those who are conservative theologians who believe the Bible is the Word of God, to refer to a human author using the word capital A slash little a-u-t-h-o-r. It's an unusual way to write it, but it just sort of reminds you that there is a divine author, capital A, and a human author, little a, of every book of the Bible. So God, when the quill hit the sheepskin, so to speak, or the scroll, whatever it was, uh, was communicating something. And so God was communicating something here, uh, not just Moses. And, and the significance of this is really the, the beginning of uh, this uh, plan that God has to overcome Satan and to redeem mankind from our own predicament. Remember, we got ourselves into this against God's advice and warning. God said, don't eat the apple, proverbial speaking, and we did. And so, so God then is, has to set in motion a plan to redeem us, and this is the beginning uh, of it. So this idea of her seed kind of gives you a hint at what the passage is referring to. Now, many modern English translations, like the NIV and the ESV, translate this offspring. But I think that's a terrible translation. It misses the point entirely. And the King James and New King James here capitalize seed with an S, giving you again a hint at what God was talking about. That's the only possible explanation because you would never say in the Hebrew culture, her Zerah, her offspring. Now it's true that Zerah is sometimes translated offspring, again, when it's referring to the seed of the male. But when you've got her seed, something different uh, is going on here. We're going to sing. I was One of my favorite parts of Sunday is being able to come early and listen to the band and the worship team practice. And we're going to sing a song in our worship hour in a little while uh, called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. <clears throat> One of the verses they're going to sing, uh, which we don't sing very often, has this line. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. <clears throat> That's a reference to Genesis 3.15. Only problem I have with the way the verse was written in Hark the Herald is they should have capitalized seed because it's talking about Christ. It's talking about Christ, her <coughs> seed. So what we see here in this verse is what theologians call the protoevangelium. So proto is the Greek word for first. Evangelium or euangelium in Greek, it's literally where we get the word evangelism, is the word gospel. So you put them together, you've got the first reference in the Bible to the gospel. Here it is in Genesis 3.15. So what we have here, even though it's not called a promise, that's going to be spelled out in the pages of Scripture to come using the word promise, but we have the beginnings, the root form, the root earliest reference to this promise of God that the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, will someday destroy the devil. Notice, he, 
capitalized, Jesus will bruise your head, right? That's a metaphorical way of saying he's going to bash you in the head, which, of course, if you have, you know, if your head is cut off, so to speak, you're done, right? There's no recovery from that. As, long as, as far as I know, they don't have head transplants yet, right? Conversely, he, he Satan, the serpent, will bruise his, capital H, that's Jesus, heel. So yeah, Satan is going to inflict a wound on Christ. But we know how that worked out, right? It was like a little annoyance, a little flea. Christ just flicked off, rose from the dead, easily defeating death, hell, and the grave because he's God. Whereas Satan, one day, will never recover from the mortal wound that Christ inflicted upon him. So this is the first inkling of the promise of God that one day the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, will destroy the devil. And when we study what lies ahead or the end times, if we, as so many do, are prone to just quickly jump to Revelation, we miss the entire context. Like we said last week, it's like reading the last chapter of a book without reading the rest of it. You, you really can't really understand what God is doing without starting at the beginning. So uh, as we consistently handle the Word of God with a literal, grammatical, historical approach, that is, we take these words in the plain, normal sense in which they were intended, which is, by the way, the way all language was intended, right? You, you read the words and you, you understand their meaning in their plain, normal sense. You don't look for some secretive code language. You know, uh, it was in the news... This week that the Zodiac Killers, the letter that he sent to the newspaper, uh, the cipher was finally solved after 51 years. And I've listened to a lot of uh, podcasts and researches and read some books about the Zodiac Killer. It's an interest of mine. A lot of true crime stuff is an interest of mine. And it was fascinating to see how they finally figured that out and what he actually said. We don't have to do that with God's Word. It's not some kind of a mystical book where God wrote in code language and we've got to count letters and we've got to figure, you know, we just simply take the words at plain face value. Now, the Bible, like all language, uses figures of speech, but it's very clear when he uses a figure of speech, God in his word, that it's a figure of speech. We don't have to question any more than we do when we talk in English or Spanish or any other language. You recognize readily when we're using a figure of speech. The fact of the matter is we use figures of speech extensively. They're very, very, very common. We just don't think about it because they've just become entrenched as part of our language. But someone who maybe doesn't know English and hears an idiom or some type of figure of speech, uh, they might struggle uh, with those things, like you drive, you're driving me up a wall or those types of things, right? Um, but, the, but we know what they mean. Same thing is true in Scripture, uh, both in the Hebrew and the Greek text. So as we read the Bible in its plain normal sense, a story emerges. And it's a story about a kingdom promise. And that kingdom promise, has, as we're going to see, has never been abrogated, never been abandoned, never been given up or changed. God never indicated, sorry, change of plans, I'm going to set that aside. It's been his plan all along. And those who reject that are, in essence, rejecting, again, one-sixth of the Bible. And they're also ignoring what should be very self-evident when you read the Bible in its plain, literal sense. The problem is the devil, who's a masterful deceiver, has convinced people that the Bible is unlike any other book, that it's mystical, 
mysterious, the way we use the word mysterious, that it's hard to understand and that only really enlightened ones can interpret it. And so we've got to look for the most fantastical interpretations of a particular verse rather than saying, no, it pretty much says that, that's what it means, you know. And, and yet most people have become convinced, and a lot of this is because of, you know, the, the dark ages when Roman Catholicism was kind of the ruling the world, if you will, and they taught that you're not smart enough to read the Bible. You've got to leave it to your priest, and he'll tell you what it means. And so we've, been, we've got centuries of conditioning there to overcome. Uh, but the fact is uh, people need to recognize they can read the Bible and they can understand the Bible. There's no hidden mystical meaning there. We don't need to read between the lines or you know, figure, you know, uh, try to understand when the word kingdom is used. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean some figurative mystical kingdom is he reigning in, in some nebulous fashion is he reigning in our hearts is he reigning in some non-tangible way no one else would have ever thought that as we're going to see this morning reading through the text so from here let's now shift ahead uh, some 2,000 years or so to the time of Abraham and in Genesis chapter 12 we begin to see this uh, promise that was intimated at through the promise of the seed of the woman and God's dialogue with, the, with Satan, begin to take form. And when he says to Abram, get out of your country, from your family and your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Now, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, constitutes what we call the Abrahamic covenant. As we're going to see, it fits perfectly the characteristics of an ancient Near Eastern treaty where you have two parties involved. In this case, it's an unconditional treaty. It's not an if-then, it's an I-will. It's an I-will statement. Now, we're going to save the discussion of the Abrahamic covenant for next time as we get into the nitty-gritty of the covenant behind the promise. But I just wanted to alert you that this passage, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, is the Abrahamic covenant. And it involves a land, and then it involves a seed, little s, a future descendants of Abraham who will become a great nation. And remember what a, a promise this was, because Abraham and Sarah were barren, and it was they were old, and it just didn't seem possible. But that's the way uh, God works in, in miraculous ways. And then verse 3, it also involves ultimately blessing everyone on earth. Now, under the curse of sin, everyone was cursed, right? But through the ultimate seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, uh, we will see, and, and the seed of the woman, Eve, we will see everyone on earth blessed. Now certainly it doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize that's not the case today, is it? We see uh, every element of this, which, this uh, promise, which is going to be extrapolated on in the coming pages of Scripture with greater detail, including additional covenants that amplify the Abrahamic covenant. But this is the foundational covenant. But we're going to see more details, for example, about the land, including the boundaries of it that will be Israel's kingdom, which to this day they have never experienced. So was God a liar? Did he change his mind? What happened? We're going to see more details about this seed of Abraham tracing down through King David and the promise that was reiterated to King David in 2 Samuel 7, uh, indicating a throne, a kingdom, uh, a temple, and so forth. And then we're going to see many references through the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 to this universal blessing that will blanket the earth. But it all started 
with Abraham. And then uh, again, let's just work through some of these uh, the, the, these uh, reiterations of the promise. Here's the one uh, about a thousand years later to King David. So now we're, if you're looking at this on a timetable, we're in 1000 BC, a thousand years before Christ, a thousand years after Abraham. When God says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Who's he talking about there? Well, in the near term, he's talking about uh, Solomon, but there are some aspects of this promise, namely verse 16, that absolutely cannot possibly be fulfilled by Solomon. Why? Because Solomon's dead and gone. He's gone the way of all flesh. And so when he says, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever, he's simply reiterating what he talked about to Abraham, and he's explaining in more detail how the promise that he gave uh, E, Adam, and Eve, and when he spoke to the serpent, is going to be uh, fulfilled. In what way will Satan ultimately be destroyed by the seed, capital S, of the woman? He goes on, your throne shall be established per forever. Later on in the same chapter, we see it referred to as a promise. This is in David's prayer of thanksgiving to God for the Davidic covenant. What we just read in chapter 7, verses 12 to 16 is what we refer to as the Davidic covenant. You don't need to remember that. We're going to come back to that next session. But uh, he's recalling this a promise. And listen to what David says. Now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. And you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, I always like to ask this at the beginning when we go through these sessions, but how many of you believe that God keeps his promises? Raise your hand. Okay, now remember that. Because I know there's been a lot of bad teaching, a lot of bad and confusing theology, and there's a lot of people out there that say this promise was either abandoned or shifted and changed into some nebulous form. But if God is a God of his word, and he is, his promise, as David prayed, is true, and it will come about. Then we see in Second Chronicles chapter 21, notice this, yet the Lord would not destroy the house of David. Why? Because of the covenant that he had made with David, and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. There you see it again, the reference to a promise. The Psalms, the psalmists often referred back to this promise as just that, a promise. Here's an anonymous psalmist in, verse, in Psalm 105 referring to it as a holy promise uh, to Abraham and his servant, recounting God's faithfulness to Israel through all the generations. Um, only God can make a holy promise because only God is holy. The book of Revelation is going to come back again full circle and say, You alone are holy. You alone are holy. And so this promise is God's promise, and you can count on it. And then we come to Jeremiah, and uh, in the context of the promise of the new covenant. And what does he say? Behold, the days are coming. So now we're roughly 500 years before Christ. Behold, the days are coming when I will perform that good thing which I promised. What is that promise? The coming of Christ and the ultimate inauguration of the kingdom. And, and we could spend all day looking up the word promise and seeing how through the, the major prophets and the minor prophets and throughout the historical books of the Old Testament, this promise is reiterated again and again. But it all started in the garden when God had that conversation uh, with Satan. 
So where is it? <laughs> what happened, right? Now, let's fast forward to today. So now we're 6,000 years later. Um, we're 2,500 years after the promise through Jeremiah. Uh, what happened? Where is this promised kingdom? Again, some people say, well, God changed his mind. Uh, some people naively say that when God sent his son, uh, born of a virgin, to live a perfect, holy, sinless life, uh, the one who would ultimately take the throne of David, uh, that because Israel crowned him with thorns instead of a king's crown, God said, okay, all bets are off. But as we're going to see next week, when we look at this unconditional covenant, the covenant never was a bilateral agreement that depended upon the, the participation of both parties. It wasn't a quid pro quo. It was an I will do this. It was a guarantee. So that, that certainly is not uh, possible. Uh, others say, though, that God changed his mind. That he didn't, uh, he didn't just say, you blew your part, so I'm going to not do my part. He actually changed the very essence of the details of the covenant. He said, oh, no, no, you, you, you misunderstood. I'm sorry that you took me literally at my word, but I never intended for this to be a literal kingdom. Um, how silly of us. Uh, to think that. Is that what happened? Well, we're going to see that both of those options don't fit with the biblical text testimony. Let's talk about uh, has God changed his mind first. Let's go back to Jeremiah 33 and see if in the reference to the promise, God could ever change his mind. Here's what the Lord said. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that there will be no day and night in their season, then, then my covenant also will be broken with my servant David, that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. Now, how many of you noticed the sun coming up this morning? Okay. Uh, how many of you expect the sun to go down this evening if the Lord doesn't come back? It'll go down anyway, but we'll be in heaven and won't care. Um, of course. And as far as I know, ever since God made this promise to Jeremiah, the sun has come up and the sun has gone down. And Jeremiah plainly says, as long as elsewhere he's going to say, in fact, I, I think I've got it here. I'm getting ahead of myself. I always forget what verses I put in because my mind just uh, goes ahead of me. But notice what he said also in the same context of the new covenant. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. Who is it that does all this? The Lord of hosts is his name, Jehovah Sabaoth. If those ordinances, the sun, moon, and stars, depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me. Anybody notice the sun and the moon in the sky recently or the stars? Every time we look up and see the sun, moon, and the stars, we ought to be reminded that God's promise is still in the works. He's not done. It's not over. He's still working out his plan, and he certainly has not changed his mind. Now, if you've been with us for our Sunday morning sermon series, we're halfway through the book of Hebrews. We're going to continue it after the holidays in January. But we left off in chapter 6, and we, we had a message which I entitled, Standing on the Promises, uh, which also talks about this Abrahamic covenant, by the way. And uh, that's available on the church website if you're interested. But 
Notice what we read in Hebrews chapter 6. When God made a promise, there's that word again, to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And uh, when we get go f through this series in a little more detail, we're going to look at some of the details of that promise. And there's no sense in, in even the most liberal broad sense, you know, mysterious meaning of the text that you could claim the promises of the kingdom are being fulfilled today. I don't know about you, but this is not a world where everyone is obedient to the king of kings like Ezekiel 36 says they will be. This is not a, king, a kingdom where Satan is bound up and held in check. This is not a kingdom where there are no injustices or inequities. Uh, there are plenty of injustices uh, and inequities, right? But enough about the recent election, let's move on. Um, uh, this is not the kingdom, right? This is not the kingdom. And, and it couldn't possibly be uh, the kingdom. Hebrews goes on, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of His promise. Remember, this is written in 67 A.D., getting very, very near the end of God's written revelation to mankind, His self-unveiling to mankind. Um, and he's still referring to this promise in the future tense. Uh, Intending to show more abundantly to the heirs of his promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. Thus, by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope. Where is that hope? Set before us, right? If everything was fulfilled in the first century at the cross, and it was all over, and we're living in the kingdom age today, like so many teach, by the way, the majority teach, right? Do you realize that those who believe in a literal future national earthly kingdom where Christ reigns in perfect peace and justice are in the minority among Bible-believing Christians, right? But that's okay. Sometimes the majority just means all the fools are on the same side, right? So we are happy to be in the minority. It's the remnant principle, right? It's a principle that, that runs throughout Scripture. But it's a hope yet future. And then you, re, you get to the book of Revelation and you find out when it's going to be inaugurated in that glorious day. So has God changed His mind? Absolutely not. Well, what about this? Was the promised kingdom figurative? If God didn't change His mind, then maybe, as some people suggest, the promises have in fact been fulfilled, but just not literally. Maybe it was all figurative. Maybe God never meant for His kingdom promise to be taken literally. Well, let's go back and look at those promises again. And you can't take a speculative 21st century interpretation and impose it on an original audience you know, 2,000 years before Christ. Uh, that's a violation of language and, and, and interpretive meaning and, and all of that, right? You've got to understand Bible words in their context. So when God is talking to Abraham and he said, go to a land, how would Abraham have understood that promise? Well, he would have understood it literally. In fact, God later on, just three chapters later, gives the boundaries of this land. Now, how in the world would anybody read that promise and assume it's figurative when he's literally marking out with stakes and markers that particular land and he refers back to it again and again in fact i have a lecture i've done in an academic setting that traces the references to the land 
through the Abrahamic, Davidic, New, and the Palestinian land covenant all the way through Scripture. It's, it's pervasive. You see it everywhere. And no hint ever that it's figurative. It's always plainly uh, literal. Or think about the promise to David. When David, the king of Israel, by the way, if you're a king and someone says to you, I'm going to give you a kingdom that will be global in scope and universal and everlasting, how would you take that? No, no king would ever assume, oh, he must be talking about something intangible that's going to be inside my body and my heart. <laughs> I mean, such a notion never even existed in any of the literature and certainly not in the pages of Scripture anywhere, but never anywhere in the pages of Scripture until you get to the modern age when people, based on the influence of Roman Catholicism and this kingdom now concept, we are the kingdom, the Pope is the king, began to think, oh, the kingdom is now. And, and we still are battling that today. There are many Christians that teach kingdom now theology, that we're in the kingdom now, but because it's figurative, they, th they say. God never intended it literally. But the, who was the promise made to? David. How would David have understood terms like house and kingdom and throne? House refers to temple. When he heard the word house, he's picturing uh, uh, big pillars and uh, rock walls and massive rooms and an elevated throne that, that he was going to sit on. And indeed, Solomon did sit on when Solomon built the temple. Uh, that's what he was picturing. He never pictured anything figurative. Now let's move forward to the first century. So let's uh, take a look at this uh, promise that was made uh, to uh, uh, Mary. And we're about to celebrate the birth of Christ here in a few weeks. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And the Lord God will give him same three words that was promised to David a thousand years earlier, a throne, a house, and a kingdom. How would Mary have understood the reference to throne and house and kingdom? She was a studied, devout Jew. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. She knew that Ezekiel the prophet, for example, had spent nine chapters detailing what the, th the temple would look like down to the boundaries and the physical material that it would be made of. She never had any inkling that somehow this kingdom, house, or throne would be figurative and metaphorical and rain, you know, in our hearts, intangible. She, of course, knew that she was carrying the long-awaited Christ child who would take the throne, literally, and rule and reign. Or we could come to John the Baptist. When John the Baptist tells the nation of Israel as the forerunner of Christ, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How would people have understood that? You're a Jew. Put yourself in that first century. You're a Jew under the uh, uh, burden of the Roman Empire. Prior to that, it was the Greek Empire. Prior to that, it was the Persians and the Medes and the uh, what Assyrians and or Babylonians. Before that, the Assyrians. And you can go all the way back to the Egyptians. You know, you've been received promise after promise after promise, and you found yourself in burden after burden after burden. And all of a sudden, someone comes and says, "Guess what?" The kingdom is at hand. How would you have understood that? You would have thought, wow, I get to be alive at the time when this kingdom is finally going to be ushered in. They would never have assumed that was metaphorical. Never. Never. Uh, or Jesus said the same thing. 
when he was speaking to the nation of Israel. What's the first major sermon Jesus preached? The Sermon on the Mount. And what does he begin to do? He begins to explain what, that the kingdom is going to be uh, consist of people that get there by faith, not by their works. He never changes the nature of the kingdom. He just says to the self-righteous, pious Pharisees and Sadducees, hey, not so fast. Yeah, the kingdom's going to come all right, but guess what? Unless you have faith, you'll never get in. Uh, you think you're self-righteous enough because of what you wear and how you talk and how long you pray and how much money you throw in the pot that you're going to get in. I'm here to tell you it's not what you do. It's, it's, it's how, who you believe. It's where your faith is. And that's the reason the very first thing Matthew records after the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, uh, you know, so you've got John the Baptist in chapter 3, Jesus in chapter 4, the Sermon on the Mount, first major sermon, 5 through 7, chapter 8 of Matthew. You have the in interaction between Jesus and a Gentile, the centurion. And the centurion's son is ill. And he comes to Jesus and says, will you heal my son? And what does Jesus say after the centurion has faith? He says, behold, I have not seen such faith even in Israel. And then he says, I tell you the truth. People will come from all over, literally he says the east and the west, to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, Matthew 8. In other words, he's rebuking the self-righteous piety of the unbelieving nation of Israel and its leaders in particular and commending the faith of a filthy, dirty, rotten Gentile. Because what Jesus is going to say for the next three and a half years of his earthly ministry is that if you want to get into the kingdom... You've got to be declared righteous, and that only happens by faith. And he does it, he points back to the same way Abraham was declared righteous by faith, the actual father of the promise. But he never once throughout uh, his earthly ministry suggests or even hints at the fact that the kingdom is going to be figurative. So think, for example, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, where Jesus goes up to the mount, Peter, James, and John go with him. Jesus is transfigured. The glory of God shines. Moses and Elijah appear. Peter looks at the whole scenario and he says, Aha! Kingdom! It's here! It's happening right now! I mean, this was a pretty pivotal moment. The glory of God, the Shekinah glory shining through Jesus the Son. And Peter incorrectly assumes the kingdom is coming. And so he says, uh, Let's build some tents and let's camp out here and let's start the kingdom. You know, here it is, right in here on this mountain. And, of course, we know what happened. By the way, it's always struck me as odd that Peter in that moment didn't even give a second thought to the nine disciples that were down at the bottom of the hill. He's like, forget them. They're lost. We're up here. I'm up here. That's all that matters. Here comes the kingdom. And Jesus, of course, uh, God speaks from heaven and says, no, 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 this isn't the right time. This is my beloved son. Hear what he has uh, to say. And so... That would have been a perfect opportunity for Jesus to clearly explain that, no, 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 Peter, it's not going to be a kingdom of tents, buildings, houses, physicality on the earth in a specific location. It's going to be metaphorical. Or why would Jesus tell the disciples they're going to sit on 12 thrones with him in the kingdom if the kingdom wasn't literally literal? Why would uh, one of the disciples' moms ask Jesus, hey, can you promote my sons? And let them sit on your right and left? That doesn't sound like someone who thinks of a kingdom as figurative, does it? She's thinking in terms of physical seats in a physical temple, in a physical kingdom, with a physical king on a physical throne and two other thrones on either side of him. 
because he had said they're going to be on 12 thrones. Or what about Luke 19 on the outskirts of Jerusalem, right before the triumphal entry, uh, when Luke, under the inspiration of the, of the Spirit, gives us a glimpse into the mindset of the disciples. And Luke says, Jesus told them this parable because the disciples thought the kingdom was going to arrive immediately. I mean, they'd been with him. For three and a half years, it's Passover week. He's coming into Jerusalem. He's going to be riding on the back of a donkey the next morning in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And the disciples were thinking, great, this is it. He's going to throw off the shackles of Rome. The kingdom is about to be inaugurated. No hint whatsoever of anything other than a physical earthly kingdom. And indeed, the parable that Jesus tells there in Luke 19 is the parable of delay, where he says, uh, not so fast, here's what's going to happen. The kingdom is going to be like a king who goes away for a while to receive the kingdom. Then he's going to come back after a long time and inaugurate that kingdom. While he's gone, you need to be busy about his work. Here's one mina for each of you. They all get the same thing. It's not the same parable as the parable of the talents. Totally different parable, totally different context, uh, different setting. Uh, in the talents, the, the subjects each get a different amount. But in the parable of the minas, they all get the same thing. One life of service, and they're to go out and do business. Then he comes back. So he's, for the first time, beginning to really hint to them that, look, this kingdom isn't going to happen now, but it is going to happen, right? He didn't say... Uh, you know, hey, it's not going to be a literal kingdom. He said it's just not going to happen now. And then you, you have the triumphal entry, which was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You have Jesus' parable of the wedding feast, where he talks about certain uh, people are going to get in and certain people are not, still invoking Jewish culture about uh, kingdom feasts and so forth. And then you've got the Olivet Discourse. So now we've fast-forwarded from the day before the triumphal entry to Wednesday of Passion Week. Thursday was when he has the upper room discourse and is betrayed in the garden. So this is the day before that. The disciples are beginning to put the pieces together and recognize the kingdom doesn't seem like it's about to happen. They ask Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and of the, the kingdom age? When, when is it going to happen? Lord, help us understand. Remember, Jesus had rebuked the temple and he said, not one stone will be left upon another. And the disciples are like, wow, how can you have a kingdom if there's no temple? Help us understand, Lord. And so then Jesus spends the next two chapters of Matthew giving us the most detailed blow-by-blow signs of what will occur right before his return. And he invokes Daniel the prophet. He says it's going to be deception and, and more and more deception and many Christs coming. And there's going to be judgments. And, and if you look carefully at Matthew 24, it parallels perfectly with Revelation 6. I've got a chart in our chart book that shows that. Uh, and he's just talking about the tribulation days and the fulfillment of Daniel's 490-year prophecy. And then he says, this will happen, this will happen, the abomination of desolation, then this, then this, then an earthquake, and then you'll see the Son of Man coming in all of His glory. And uh, let's look, uh, I know we're out of time here, but let's close with this verse. In Matthew chapter uh, 25, or 24, verse 30, And again, this is literally hours, less than a day before he is betrayed. Uh, and uh, he says, or about a day, and he says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear, Matthew 24, 30, in the heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and will see, will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, how can you see something that's not literal? How can you see something that's metaphorical? 
And then, of course, 25, he says, when the Son of Man comes, in, in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in all of His glory, then He will sit on His throne. So, Jesus clearly uh, states uh, that He is uh, returning uh, to earth to establish His earthly kingdom. Uh, and He says, will, when he, on the Mount of Ascension, after the death and resurrection and the 40 days of appearances, he then ascends to the right hand of the throne of God, the throne in waiting, where he's waiting to come back and having received the kingdom and inaugurated. But as he's ascending up to heaven, the disciples say, So, Lord, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom? Still expecting a literal kingdom. And what does Jesus say? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. He does not say, Oh, you silly disciples, haven't you figured it out yet? here it is, I just gave it to you when I rose from the dead, and this is a figurative kingdom. Enjoy, I'm going back home. No, he says, I'm going home and I'm going to come again. In fact, Jesus says that in John 14, if I go away, I will come again to receive you to myself, talking about the rapture there. Uh, so was the promised kingdom figurative? No, absolutely not. And uh, so with that, we'll close out for today. We'll pick up next time. Uh, talking about why then so many people reject this notion of a literal uh, kingdom. All right, sorry I, I filibustered the whole time and you didn't have time for questions, but you can email me or uh, talk to me during the break and I'll be glad to answer questions. All right, we're dismissed. We'll come back together here in about 15 minutes. <laughs>